This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 1st, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. This past week, we heard about the emergence of a new SARS-CoV-2 variant, now known as Omicron. And today, we're lucky to have Salim Abdul-Karim with us to discuss what's known about this variant that was first identified in Southern Africa. Salim has been a guest on this podcast before. He's an HIV researcher in Durban who has helped lead the panel that's been advising the South African government during COVID-19. He's also a member of the journal editorial board. Slim, thanks for joining us. Omicron is one of a few variants that have been identified in South Africa. How is surveillance performed there that leads to these discoveries? As part of our overall pandemic preparedness, the government of South Africa has invested quite heavily in the establishment of genomic sequencing platforms. Because we had to deal with the beta variant about a year ago, we have been very cognizant of the importance of identifying variants. And so establishing the surveillance and the ability to do rapid genomic sequencing is very much part and parcel of our plans as we anticipated new variants emerging that may drive our fourth wave. The sequencing is done both in the government laboratories as well as in academic laboratories. And what has happened as a result of this initiative is that most of the gene sequencing facilities in South Africa have come together as a single consortium known as the Genomic Surveillance Consortium. And that group, led by Professor Tulio Donavera, has been leading the charge on doing genomic sequencing in South Africa. It is striking, Slim, how South Africa was one of the leaders in utilizing genomic sequencing. I wonder how much all of the experience with HIV and its variation has contributed to having the scientific infrastructure available in South Africa to cope with COVID. Because we have established quite substantial PCR infrastructure to do viral load testing, when COVID came along, we simply shifted gear. We pivoted using the same equipment for PCR testing for COVID-19. Similarly, we had established sequencing in order to do surveillance for drug resistance in patients with HIV. And so much of the current sequencing capacity that we had at the start of this pandemic was actually for HIV. And so HIV has been a critical part of building that infrastructure that has enabled South Africa to do this kind of gene sequencing. Slim, I think you're absolutely right. The importance of when we build infrastructure to answer one scientific question, we're well positioned to answer others. And we need to look at the versatility of the scientific process and our community. And I think this is an excellent example of the value of that, as you noted. And turning back to the Omicron variant, what are the molecular differences in this particular variant? When I first saw the sequence of this variant, I was quite aghast. It had a lot of mutations, over 50 I could see. And importantly, it had mutations that overlapped with alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. And what I could see was it had important characteristics in the mutations that we were seeing that could confer the phenotypic characteristics we've seen in these four variants. So you can characterize 
the mutations into three groups. The first are mutations we know well. We know them well because they are in the existing four variants of concern. We have some idea of what they lead to and what they do. Then there's all those mutations that we have some idea of what they do. They've been studied in other ways, and we have some inkling as to what they might lead to. But there's a lot of mutations we have no idea. We've never seen them before. We have no idea what they confer. So to quite a large extent, this virus in this form as Omicron is an unknown entity. We can extrapolate based on the mutations that we are aware of and that we know what they do. But there's a lot more going on that will still have to reveal itself over time. So Slim, what we can now tell with genotyping, which is part of what has emerged over the last decade or two as we're able to rapidly sequence, is a lot of inference about the subsequent impact on protein structure and therefore the virulence factors. And what you see in the genotype of Omicron are both immune evasion as well as transmissibility mutations that suggest that this may unfortunately turn out to be a formidable variant for us to deal with. So it's still early, but what have we learned about the epidemiology of Omicron from observations in South Africa? Well, we've only known the variant for just about a week. So there's not much we actually know, but we can, at this very early stage, look at some preliminary data. So what have we seen? The first thing we've seen is that cases are rising rapidly in South Africa. And when we look at the week before the reporting of Omicron, we have a population of about 60 million. We were averaging about two to 300 cases per day. We were in pretty low transmission. Right now, we are at about 10 times that number. We are at about 2,000 to 3,000 cases per day. So the numbers have gone up quite substantially in just one week. And if we look at the number of sequences that are Omicron, they are rapidly increasing. So that suggests that this rapid increase in cases is being driven by Omicron. So that's the first observation that we have made. The second observation that has been made is in talking to several clinicians this morning who have been treating patients with this variant, they were all saying the same thing, which is that it's presenting like just every other COVID case. They're not seeing anything different. But I'm generally very skeptical of anecdotes like that because it's quite a selected group of patients that are coming into their practices. And in any case, the more severe cases will only feature in a few weeks' time because you don't see the severe cases initially. So I've made it very clear that the jury's out as to whether it's more severe or not. I mean, from an evolutionary point of view, we would expect that the virus would in all likelihood be less severe or similar severity because it would confer a disadvantage if it started making people sick because then they wouldn't spread the virus as much. So I'm not anticipating there would be much change in severity. So Slim, as you note the rising epidemiology, 
what is the background vaccination rate or natural infection rate of this community that the transmission is occurring in? There have been several zero surveys that have been done in South Africa. And I think probably the best estimate is that somewhere around 70% or so of South Africans have been exposed to the virus through just natural infection. We don't have that many reported cases, of course. 70% of our population translates into close on to 55 million people. But we have about 3 million reported cases. So it just gives you some idea of the high proportion of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic cases. In terms of vaccination, about 35% of the adult population is now fully vaccinated, and about another 8% have a single dose. So we're at about 43% vaccine coverage. In the lower age groups, our vaccine coverage is much lower. We have much higher vaccination in those who are above 60, hovering around two-thirds of that group have been vaccinated already. So this wave that you're seeing right now, if it really is a wave, that this very early increase in case rates is happening on that background of lots of previous infection and some vaccination, again, at the level of anecdote. Do you know anything about these people who are being infected this time around? Are they people who have had symptomatic infections before? Are they people who've received vaccines? It would be very difficult for any virus to spread at this level in a population that's got 70% natural infection without leading to reinfections. So we have a system by which we monitor reinfections. So we have a system whereby we have the identities of those individuals who've tested positive previously. And if they get tested positive again, it flags it in our system. And in the last week, we've seen an increase in reinfections. It's a small increase, and I'm hesitant to make anything of it other than to say it's just a little signal. It may not you know, be anything of consequence. But if this virus is going to spread in South Africa, it is going to have to cause lots of reinfections, which means immune escape from natural immunity. Now, that's not unusual. The beta variant was really good at escaping natural immunity and causing reinfections. In fact, what we found is in the beta variant, it made almost no difference that you'd been infected before in terms of the infection rates. The infection rates were similar in those who'd been previously infected and those who hadn't had previous infection. I mean, Slim, that gets to the issue of compartment, which is may reinfection occur easily in mucosal surfaces such as the nasopharynx, leading to high viral replication and shedding, but systemic immunity even partial or partially matched, may be adequate to prevent more severe illness. We don't know yet, but there's possibilities that this may have a compartment issue that affects transmissibility as opposed to severity of illness. I tend to agree with you. Based on what we've seen with the vaccine's ability to prevent severe disease and hospitalization against all the other variants, they've done pretty well. 
they've been able to retain their efficacy often you know above 90% for severe disease and hospitalization and that's you know a reflection that t cell immunity may play a more important role in severity of illness so i'm expecting that something similar is likely to occur with omicron that we are likely to see some level of immune escape from antibodies but not significant immune escape if any from cellular t cell responses now vaccines tend to elicit much higher antibody levels and quite a range of antibodies so even if we see antibody escape it may be partial in other words escaping some antibodies but not others and so the level of protection which is antibody mediated against mild infections we are likely to see that rise based on our experience with similar mutations in the beta variant and the delta variant so slim i understand that this is speculative but how likely are monoclonal antibodies to be able to bind to this new variant steve as we look at this new variant you know we have almost no clinical evidence or data to work with at this time and so in the absence of that we'll have to just you know speculate and to some extent extrapolate and deduce from the existing mutations that we understand so that's why you know we don't have any facts about is it more transmissible is it more severe does it escape immunity we don't have clinical evidence for those but we can with extrapolation from understanding the current mutations we can make a pretty good guess as to what the likely outcome is on all of those questions with regard to treatment i think we can pretty much work on the basis that most of our treatment protocols will still be appropriate and will still be effective where we are likely to see a challenge is in the area of the monoclonal antibodies and it's an open question right now as to whether they will be effective or not i could speculate but i think it's probably better you know let's wait for the data because we're going to have to just keep using them in patients on omicron to determine whether they are effective until we get the laboratory evidence to suggest that they have good neutralization so slim i think what you're highlighting is one of the challenges of this pandemic which is speed both in terms of the virus the scientific response and how we communicate and from my perspective the observation made by your colleagues in south africa and shared with the world so quickly is incredibly valuable and is enabling all of us to think about this problem and plan different responses but what it does is it leaves us with so many more questions than answers because things are being reported in real time and as you just commented on the use of monoclonal antibodies or other treatments or how severe the illness may be we don't know because we are discussing this within days of the observation and that is i think terrific but incredibly unsettling given the number of questions lindsay i think you've touched on a key challenge which is uncertainty there's a high level of uncertainty in everything we're talking about because it is so new and that uncertainty has led to a level of anxiety 
And what we have seen in the face of uncertainty is panic and overreaction. The classic case of that being the way the US closed the borders and banned travel from South Africa. I mean, just at a time when Omicron is desperately in need of a global response where we stand together to take on this global challenge, we end up seeing countries that are erecting barriers and creating separation between our countries and punishing South Africa for having reported and being so transparent with important scientific information. This is going to be an incentive for all other countries not to report when they find new variants. And I would just build on that, Slim, in that it's not only transparent, the observations made give us all a head start. Because it's inevitable. This virus has emerged. It is spreading widely, well beyond the boundaries we are aware. And the earlier we identify it and key factors associated with it, we all have a better head start to try and contain it or mitigate it. And that's where we have to appreciate the scientific process wherever it is deployed and unfolds, because we all benefit, even if we don't like the answer. Slim, what is the impact of the travel ban in Southern Africa? We hear a lot about people who got stranded at the airport, but I imagine that it's much larger than that. In a time when global supply chains are already disrupted, what's it going to mean for day-to-day life in Southern Africa? This pandemic has caused such devastation, economic, mental health, just, you know, people are having to deal with all of the consequences of this. Tourism is one of the four biggest industries in South Africa. And when this message goes out that travel to South Africa shouldn't be the case, Basically, at the key point where we actually need our economies to grow, and even if it's internal tourism, what we are seeing is that this becomes one more hammer that throws you down just when you're trying to recover. In a way, this pandemic is relentless. Just when you think you're getting the upper hand, it comes back at you. And It is soul-destroying to have to face it in this way. It would be so much better if we were trying to face this together and not one in which we are at odds with each other about how to deal with it. And I feel that it has created a schism in an environment where we would do so much better by joining hands in taking on this variant. So Slim, you pointed out that about 43% of the adult population of your country is vaccinated. I think that one of the things that we all need to realize, and as you just suggested, we need to raise the vaccination level, not only in South Africa, but in the world to much, much higher levels if we really want to control this pathogen. And what this episode should remind us, if we haven't learned already, is that variants will emerge everywhere until we control this pathogen. And we need to do that through global scale-up 
of our countermeasures, particularly vaccination is one of the most potent. And I guess one of the questions, Slim, is how do we do that? How do we enhance vaccination in South Africa and the rest of the world, which is what's needed to really control this? Having dealt with this pandemic for the last 23 months, three key things have emerged as important lessons from the Omicron experience. The first is that we have grossly underestimated the importance of vaccinating and monitoring vaccination status in immunocompromised individuals. They should be our highest priority, and we know that about 40% of them don't respond to two doses of Pfizer vaccine. They need third doses, they need fourth doses, because protecting that group is not just protecting them, but it's also reducing our risk of developing a variant. The second thing I've learned, a lesson that has come through, is the central importance of ensuring that we really get our vaccination rates up you know, to levels that can provide us with good protection. Without that, we are going to be continually sitting ducks for the rapid spread of a new variant. We've got to ensure that we get our vaccines. Now, we've had to deal with vaccine inequity, and so we had this challenge, we couldn't get doses. That's now being remedied. We now are able to get doses in Africa. Now comes the bigger challenge of converting vials into jabs in arms because we're dealing with healthcare systems that are not really well developed. So to me, the importance of that and doing it timelessly is really critical. But third is that variants have changed the COVID-19 endgame. Our initial concept that we would simply vaccinate the public and vaccinate the population and that we could go and our merry way, as we do with measles and other diseases, simply does not apply. We are going to have to use combination prevention. We're going to have to use our public health measures to supplement our vaccine because we will never be sure about the generation of new variants that may escape vaccines. So the importance of maintaining masks and maintaining social distance and all of those public health measures are just as important. And we tend to underplay them because we tend to think of vaccines as silver bullets. It's not. We're going to have to use our full array of tools if we are to defeat this virus. Um, I'd like to point out that some have argued that the emergence of variants in Africa is an important reason why we should get rid of vaccine inequity and then make sure that Africa has vaccines. In my view, that is an inappropriate argument. We should be ensuring that all of us are safe, that all of us have vaccines, and that vaccine equity is the standard bearer. Not because Africa is a threat, but because it's the right thing to do. Thank you, Slim, for being with us today. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.